Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. There are a few things in life more truly satisfying to a human being than a, a job well done. Some people never know such satisfaction because they never really do anything well. But those who do, who really work at something and see it to completion, know. It's a satisfaction of a student who finishes course with high honors, or the satisfaction of a musician who has at last mastered a difficult piece of music. It is, to give a specific biblical example, the satisfaction of the Apostle Paul, who said to Timothy near the end of his life, from already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all of those who love his appearing. How much more the satisfaction that Jesus must have felt by accomplishing the salvation of all mankind. And that's what we're going to begin with this morning. Look at verse 4 with me. Actually, you can't look at it. but uh, I glorified you on the earth by accomplishing the work which you have given me to do. The beginning of that verse is actually a challenge to all of us. At the end of our days, we want to be able to say that we have glorified God with our lives. And the only way we can do that is if we put God first. The problem is we're all prone to idolatry in one form or another. Now, what do I mean? Well, to describe the concept more clearly, anything that becomes the purpose or driving force of our life probably points back to idolatry of some kind. Think about what you have pursued and created and Ask yourself why. If you have a drug or alcohol or even a food addiction, why? If you have a hot button issue that makes you very upset, why? If you look forward to shopping even though you are drowning in debt, why? If you spend hours polishing the car or redecorating the house, why? Now to think of such things as idolatry, we need to use new imagery. We need to discard the idea of golden cows and multi-armed figurines as idolatry is much more nuanced and deceptive than that, isn't it? When God issued the command during the time of Moses, the people were familiar with a lot of other gods. God's people had spent more than 400 years in Egypt as slaves. Now, Egypt was crowded with gods. They had taken over the neighborhood literally. The Egyptians had local gods for every district. Egypt was the Baskin-Robbins of gods. You could pick and choose the flavors that you wanted. Now, the Bible's paradigm is different. When we hear God say, you shall have no other gods before me, we think of it as a hierarchy, as if God is always to be in first place. But there are no places. God isn't interested in competing against others or being the first among many. God will not be part of any hierarchy. He wasn't saying before me as in ahead of me, 
A better understanding of the Hebrew word translated before me is in my presence. What that means is God declines to set atop an organizational flow chart. He is the organization. He's not interested in being the president of the board. He is the board. And life doesn't work for us until everyone else sitting around the table of the boardroom of our hearts are fired. He is God, and there are no other applicants for that position. There are no partial gods or honorary gods, no interim gods or no regional gods. The profound wisdom of that second commandment is that anything in the world can be hammered into an idol. And therefore, it can be a false god if it is misplaced at the top of our affections. Basically, it's do-it-yourself idolatry. Well, Pastor Bill, what if I have been involved in idolatry like that of some, sport, of some sort? The great news is Lamentations tells us that the Lord's mercies are new every single morning. Now, why would I bring that out? Because if you're sitting here thinking, I've been chained to this thing for years, and it's now, it's now just too late for me to change. You may think it's too late and that it's no use, but you can begin that change this very morning. And no matter how long you have been bound by whatever sin just popped into your mind right now, you can be more profitable to the kingdom and closer to God than all of your previous years combined. God is the God of the second chance and the do-over. So don't think that this doesn't speak to you right now. Now, personally, I know that I have far less years in front of me than I do behind me. And I've decided just in the last 60 days to do whatever I have to do to make sure that the time that I have left is the most spiritually productive of my whole life. And you can do that also. Next to you, it says, I have glorified you on this earth. This is the first point in determining how successful in life we are. Now, maybe you are an excellent mother or a gifted musician, a deep Bible teacher, a wonderful neighbor, or a hard worker. But who has received the glory for that? Now, Jesus had a way of working where without exception, every time in the New Testament that he showed power, Scripture always says the people saw it and then glorified God in heaven. Well, how about us? Jesus said, let your light so shine among men that they might see your good works and do what? The same thing, glorified God in heaven. So are we getting the glory or is God? Now, God will share his goodness and his grace and his mercy with us, but he will never share his glory. And when we try to be a glory thief, well, let's just say that he has ways of popping our balloon. I know whereof I speak on this. The next thing Jesus tells us is that he alone has accomplished the work. That's good news. And that's what the word gospel means. Jesus had already glorified the Father by the matchless perfection of his life, as reiterated in verse 4 where we read, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. His life was a permanent monument to God's glory. Now, he did this through his many miracles, but supremely through his example of his day-to-day -day life. 
The first thing I want to point out is that salvation was a work that only the Son of God could accomplish. Now, there are a few conclusions to this, and they are as obvious as they are inescapable. First, if Christ's atoning work is finished, and if it has been accepted as such by the Father, then what folly it is and what ingratitude it shows if we think we can add anything to that. Millions of people this morning, many of them serious church-going people, are doing this. They do not disbelieve Christ's work especially, but neither do they trust it wholly. Instead, they try to add to it by tears and confessions and charity and every other kind of supposed good work. They suppose that by these things, God may perhaps be moved to be gracious to them and to finally save them at last. That is an insult to God. It is therefore insulting to suppose we can add anything to the salvation that he in his own great love and wisdom planned before the foundation of the world. He then brought it through completion in time through the death of his beloved son, the Lord Jesus. Now please know that Jesus didn't say, I started the work or I thought about the work or I was eventually going to get to the work. He said, no, I have finished the work. Jesus was not a procrastinator. By the way, did you hear the joke about the procrastinator? I'll tell you later. <laughs> but how often have we known or maybe even ourselves not finished something that we have started? I'm sure glad that Noah finished the work that he was called to do. Because if he hadn't, none of us would be here today. I'm glad he didn't start building the ark, and once he got the frame completed, saying, you know, I don't really think that we need a roof. I'm tired of working on this stupid boat with everybody around me ridiculing me. Noah, what a great man. Now, many know this, but he was also a brilliant businessman. Did you know that Noah was the only person in history to float his entire stock while the rest of the world was in liquidation? You didn't know of that, did you? <laughs> I tickle me. Uh, my question is, how did Jesus, who had the most important job in all history, manage to complete it? And yet he was often falsely accused of being a lazy, gluttonous drunk. The whole city wants you, they told Jesus in Mark 1:37. But having spent that morning in prayer, however, he knew that the directive from his father was for him to minister in the backwoods region of Galilee. Thus, he went in the opposite direction of the clamor of the crowd. I believe this is why you never see Jesus accused of being busy. His enemies accused him of being a wine-bibber, a glutton, demon-possessed, and even crazy. But they never accused him of being too busy. That's because Jesus moved with a paced peace and an ordered steadiness because he knew the heart of the Father. Listen, people's burdens that they want to place upon us will give us an ulcer. People's expectations can drive you crazy. And whenever my own burdens are oppressive, I know I'm not doing the will of the Father anymore. 
But when he directs me day by day, and I, that it's, it is then that I find that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, which is what he promised in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Now for the application. What has God called you to do? What has he spoken to your heart about? Maybe it's a certain sin that's got to go, and you think, well, I've got that pretty much taken care of. I know the Lord's told me to do that completely, but I, I have cut way back. But have you finished it? Well, no, but I've got it under control. Anytime we think that we have sin under control, we are only deluding ourselves. Had an abscess tooth a few weeks ago, and you know what? That's a great picture of any sin that we don't deal with. What do I mean? Well, you can mask the pain of an abscess tooth by taking Lortab. And for a short while, it will quit hurting, and you can convince yourself that it's all fixed for about six hours. And then it reminds you that it's time to take another Lortab. And that's how we can often treat our sin if we're not careful. We know that there's a problem. Often those who are the closest to us knows that there's a problem. But instead of dealing with that problem, we do other things to just try to alleviate the pain. Maybe it's shopping or sex or a host of addictions, but once those things wear off, and they will wear off, the pain returns, and we have to go through the whole cycle again. Eventually, I had to go to the dentist for a root canal. It was only $1,300, but what's that between friends, right? The great thing, though, is it brought instant relief by fixing the problem. In the same way, I urge you, if the Lord has his finger on something in your life that he wants to deal with, address it and finish it off once and for all. I promise you, you are going to be a whole lot happier, and it won't cost you an arm and a leg like it did for me, because Jesus has paid that bill. Look at verse 5 with me. And now you, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world existed. I revealed your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have followed your word. Jesus begins by saying, glorify me together with yourself. Now, please understand that he was not merely seeking his own glory there. No, his perfectly righteous request was that by his sacrifice, the Son might glorify the Father. As Leon Morris explains, he writes, this part of the prayer is often said to be the prayer for Jesus himself. As he prays that he may be glorified, there is perhaps something in this. But this is not prayer for himself in the way that we usually understand that. Since his glorification is to be seen in the cross, it is a prayer rather that the Father's will may be done in him. If we do talk about this as Jesus' prayer for himself, we should at least be clear that there is no type of self-seeking in it. Now, we can only dimly perceive what Christ's glory was like before the world existed. We know that he was the creator of a universe so large, it would take a person at least 50 octillion years traveling at the speed of light to visit every star that we just know of. We also know that he enjoyed perfect intimacy with the rest of the Godhead 
that there was always a joyous coming together of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And beyond that, we know very little. We do know that he made himself nothing, as Philippians 2 says, and that he set aside the exercise of his glorious existence of deity in order to plunge so low that he actually became flesh and blood. In verse 6, Jesus tells us that he has revealed the name of God. Now, the name of God is a, is a Semitic phrase that speaks of God's attributes. In the Bible, as you know, name often refers to nature because names were often given to reveal something special about that person who was bearing that name. For instance, Jacob was a schemer, and his name comes from a Hebrew root that means to take by the hill or to trip or deceive. The name Isaac means laughter because he brought joy to Abraham and Sarah. And even the name Jesus reveals that he is the Savior. So to be protected by the name is therefore to be, is to be protected by the one who is sovereign, holy, all-knowing, wise, compassionate, and anything else that can be properly said about God. Proverbs 18.10 catches this exactly by saying, The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run into it and are safe. It is interesting in verse 6 that the Greek word translated reveal means to unfold or, or lead or to just show the way. And like that, Jesus didn't instantly reveal the Father in a blaze of blinding glory because his disciples could not have endured that kind of experience. So it, does, it doesn't mean so much declaration as it does illustration. When Jesus said, I have revealed your name, he wasn't saying, I have preached about it verbally as much as he was saying, I have lived it out observably. Gradually, over those three years, by his words and by his deeds, he revealed to those disciples the nature of God as they were able to bear it. Great is the mystery, Paul would later say, that God was manifested in the flesh. Jesus said, that is what I've done, Father. I have lived out your name and your nature before these men that you have entrusted to me. They have seen you by seeing me. Once again, what about us? We too are called to reveal God's name to those around us. For instance, as the law came down from Mount Sinai, it read things like, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make any graven image. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not covet. It was a heavy revelation or a heavy revy for all you hipsters. But the people received it because it was delivered to them by a man whose face was glowing. Now so too. If we come down on our friends, colleagues, or kids and we're growling instead of glowing, They'll resent us and the law that we bring. Your kids will rebel and your friends will leave and it just won't work. But if like Moses and Jesus we're spending time with the Father, we will be able to correctly manifest him. And that really is the only way that we can make a difference. Now after talking about the Father to his disciples in the upper room, Jesus now talks to the Father about his disciples. In verse 6, he says, they were yours, and they are mine. In Exodus 19, God says to the people of Israel, you saw what I did in Egypt, how I brought you on eagle's wings to myself, so you would be my treasured possession, a holy nation, and my own people. 
Just so nobody thinks that this was only true of the Old Testament people of God, in the New Testament, Peter says to the church, but you are a chosen people, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Let me ask us a question. What does it mean to be holy? It means literally in 1 Peter 2.9, it says you're a holy nation. You, are, you belong to God. You are God's people. So really, holy just means separated. You know, we think of holiness, it's, it's different than goodness. It's not the same. It's different than righteousness. It's not quite the same. It's like in the temple, certain items were declared to be holy. Some of the furniture was holy. Now, they didn't glow or anything. They were just set apart. In other words, they were not for common use. That's us. We are holy in the sense that God has set us apart from sin and this sick world. We are always holy in the sense that we are covered by the blood of Christ so that when God looks at us, he sees only the righteousness of his son. That's the good news. Even when we blow it, we are still holy in that sense. That never changes. What our desire should be this morning is to match our behavior to that position. In other words, we want to strive to separate ourselves more and more from sinful things, thoughts, and attitudes. And that, my beloved, is what the Bible calls sanctification. And it is a lifelong process. And until we cross over that chilly Jordan and stick our sword in the sand, we will never be sinless down here, but we will sin less, and we will feel worse when we do sin. That is the mark of true conversion. Jesus says, Father, you have given me these disciples, and they have followed your word. Excuse me? Wait a minute. Did Jesus actually just say that his disciples have obeyed or followed your word? That just leapt out at me when I was reading over this. Suddenly it struck me. How could Jesus say that about these disciples? You know these guys, as we've been reading about them since we started the Gospel of John back in April 14, 2019. Yes, it really has been that long. Anyway, all they do is mostly quarrel. All they do is mostly doubt. All they do is scramble for preeminence. And they're about to desert him and deny him within a matter of hours. Why in the world would Jesus say they have obeyed your word? Sure doesn't look like it. Look at verse 6. They obey your word. You know what's happening? Jesus is looking at their hearts, and he sees that they indeed want to do the very thing that they're not doing sometimes, and even when they blow it. Well, we should cut them some slack. Remember, they haven't even been filled with the Holy Spirit as of yet. Because when they were filled, the Bible says they turned the world upside down. But how I love the compassion of Christ. Look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, coming back and saying to the disciples who for the third time have fallen asleep when he asked them not to. And what did Jesus say in response to that? You bunch of knuckleheads. I'm getting crucified in a few hours, and I ask you to just do one thing. Just pray for me. But instead, here you are snoring and drooling all over the place. No. With great compassion, he says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I know you mean well. 
Psalm 130 says, If you were to mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness in sins with thee, therefore you are feared. Now that gives me great comfort this morning. The standard for the Christian life isn't perfect obedience, for if it were, no one in here would stand a chance. No, the standard is a heart that desires to do the will of God. And when we do blow it, and we are from time to time going to blow it, we are quick to repent and try again. And with that knowledge, how dare we be hard on any brother or sister who is struggling in any area this morning? Now, I'm not talking about going easy on sin. And sometimes the most loving thing we can do may be a difficult and awkward confrontation. I'm talking about Galatians 6, 1, where we read, Brothers and sisters, even if a person is caught in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual are to restore such a one, how? In a spirit of gentleness. Then what? Each one looking to yourself so that you are not as tempted as well. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. How do we know if we're doing this? Listen, the test of whether we are doing this or not, whether we are fixing our face consistently on the face of the Father, is whether those people who are the most flawed and who therefore get more criticism from all over the place, whether they consider us a harbor or a refuge. There are a lot of people out there with so many falls and blemishes, and they are getting criticisms from everywhere. Quite frankly, they irritate everybody. But do they consider us a harbor and a refuge? Do they consider us more understanding than other people? Are they willing to come to us and tell us their problems because they sense a lack of irritability? Is that true of us? If it is not, we have not fully fixed our face on the name of the Father. We are not yet being fully sanctified by the truth. Another example. If we fix our face on the name of the Father, not only does it give us a gentle spirit instead of an irritable spirit, it gives us a repenting spirit instead of a defensive spirit. Think of it this way. If we have a billion dollars in the bank and somebody pickpockets $100, it's like a prick of the finger. However, if we only have $200 to our name and somebody pickpockets $100, it's like a knife in our heart. It's the same amount. It's the same crime. For one, it's a prick in the finger. And to the other one, it's a stab in the heart. Listen to me. As much as every Christian in here has been given and forgiven, we are all spiritual billionaires. And if we stay focused on the Lord, a lot of stuff that happens to us should be like a prick in the finger. We can't stay critical. We can't find ourselves looking at other people and always being irritable and grouchy and grumpy and, and unhappy with them and finding all sorts of faults with them. Not to put too sharp a point on it, but we can't be critically spirited if we consistently remember and are being melted by the fact that God covers all of our offenses and affirms our strengths because he's the perfect father. I'd like to close this morning with something from C.H. Spurgeon. It's a great picture of what we should look like in this matter. He begins with Micah 5.7, which reads, And the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people as a dew from the Lord, as a showers upon the grass that tarrieth not for man, nor waiteth for the sons of men. 
Spurgeon writes, If this be true of literal Israel, much more it is true of the spiritual Israel, the believing people of God. When saints are what they should be, they are an incalculable blessing to others among whom they are scattered. They are as the dew, for in a quite unobtrusive manner, they refresh all those around them. Silently but effectually, they minister to the life, growth, and joy of those who dwell with them. Coming fresh from heaven, glistening like diamonds in the sun, gracious men and women attend to the feeble and insignificant till each blade of grass has its own drop of dew. Little as individuals they are, when united, all sufficient for the purposes of love which the Lord fulfills through them. Dew drops accomplish the refreshing of broad acres. Lord, make us like the dew. Godly people are showers which come at God's bidding without man's leave or license. They work for God whether men desire it or not. They no more ask human permission than the rain does. Lord, make us thus boldly prompt and free in thy service wherever our lot is cast. Now, am I there? No. <laughs> at least not to the, 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 the degree that I want to be. But we can grow together in this. As I've often said, it is a long and hard road to the celestial city, and we truly do need one another. Pray with me. And Father, that is so true. You have given yourself for us. You have completed that work of salvation in each of us. But Lord, you have called us to do a work down here the same way that you revealed the glory of God to those around you, and it changed the world. We all have our individual worlds, Lord, people that orbit around us, and we want to shine that same way, that they may be drawn to you, that they may find your teaching more and more attractive. Make us like that do, Lord. We ask in your name. Amen.